Creative Matters. Conversations on all things culture and creativity from Arts Council England. Hello, I'm Kirsty Lang and welcome to Creative Matters, Arts Council England's brand new podcast. We begin with a three-part series on the art of leadership and we're going to be asking guest panels some burning questions and sharing ideas around helping boards and executives demonstrate good leadership and governance within the arts and cultural sector. This is our first episode and it's aptly titled About a Board. What makes a good one? What makes a bad one? And where's the line between the executive and the trustees? So, let's get going. I'm going to introduce our panel. Claire Connor is Chief Executive of the Dance and Performance Centre, The Place, in London. She was previously Director of Business Development at the South Bank Centre and also co-founded the National Network Future Arts Centres. Hello. Moira Sinclair is the Chief Executive of the Paul Hamlin Foundation. Amongst a number of other roles, she also chairs Claw Leadership. She's Vice Chair of the London Mayor's Cultural Strategy Board and a member of the British Library Advisory Council. Hello, Kirsty. And last but not least, Govinda Sander, Artistic Director of Cohesion Plus, which uses the arts to bring communities in Kent together. And he's also a member of Arts Council England's Southeast Area Council. Hi, Kirsty. Welcome to all of you. It's going to be a, you know, a relaxed chat. People are going to be looking for tips. Maybe people listening who are thinking about joining an arts board, already on an arts board, thinking about taking up a chair's position. Or, you know, maybe a, an exec who's struggling a bit with their relationship with the board. We all know that happens. Now, I'd like to ask a broad question to kick off the discussion. How would you describe the role of a board in an arts organisation? I mean, beyond the obvious, you know, signing off the business plan, etc. What role does the board play? Claire, you first. I think it's a combination of things, but there's some aspects which are really about oversight, about direction and ensuring effectiveness and accountability to the stakeholders. But for arts organisations, there's this central tenet, which is your creative and your artistic programme. Would the board get involved in creative decisions? It's a really good question. I think it's one of those things where what you would want to have is a conversation about the artistic programme, about the vision and the creativity. You wouldn't necessarily have the trustees making those decisions, but they would certainly need to sign off on the strategy. Moira, you next. What is the role of the board in an arts organisation? Well, I completely agree with Claire that there is something about oversight which is central. I like to describe the role partly as being about being a critical friend to the executive team, particularly, I think, from my perspective, thinking about the support that the board should and could offer the chief executive. We're going to come back specifically to that very key relationship between the chair and the CEO in a moment. Now, I want to keep it a bit broader at the moment. Govinda, the role of the board... My organisation is a very small organisation and I think the board play a very critical role. It's a number of things, as Moira has already said, about being a critical friend, providing that, in addition to the oversight, just having um, people who I can talk to just to bounce ideas off as well. And for me, the, the role of the board is to have kind of oversight but also provide help and support to myself as and when uh, required. So they're bringing in sort of other expertise as well, presumably, aren't they? That's the idea. So be it around finance, be it around governance, be it around fundraising, be it around marketing. That's where the board provide that support to myself and uh, my team. What makes a good trustee 
of a cultural organisation. I mean, does that person need to have a background in the arts or you know any kind of creative industry, Claire? No, I, I don't think so. I think they have to have an empathy and a passion for it. I can think of examples where I'm currently a trustee and one of the longest serving members is not from an arts background but has given great service through his passion. And similarly on my current board, I've got members who don't come from that background but their specialist skill really is what we need. I mean, the key really is to have lots of different people around the table, isn't it? It is. It is. And that's another question and another challenge for our boards is to have that diversity. And that doesn't come easily. You have to craft that to make that happen, I think. I think, Claire's right, you have to have some commitment to and be proud of the organisation. You are going to be representing them out in the wider world at some point. You know, I'm a chair of an organisation, the East London Dance, and I, I ask a huge amount of my fellow trustees. They give enormous amounts of time. So to do that for an organisation that you don't care about is a sort of a ridiculous situation to get yourself into. So, so they need to be fairly passionate about the subject. There has to be something to draw people in to get the best out of them. I'm also looking for people who aren't too narrow, who aren't just representing their own particular niche, whether that's an art form or a business specialism. And often I think being a trustee uncovers things that you have forgotten are valuable to others, which is a lovely, mutually beneficial piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Isn't it sometimes a danger with arts organisations that you might get people signing up to become trustees because, oh, it's a bit glamorous and I'll get free tickets and you know, et cetera. Um, but actually then uh, sitting around the boardroom table don't really contribute very much. See Claire nodding. <laughs> I mean, have you come across this issue? It's a really interesting question because the recruitment process, in a way, has to help you answer those questions, and it's a two-way process. I think one of the fundamental roles of a good chair is to bring out the best in their trustees and to recognise that they might bring things that they don't actually know that they're going to bring until you've teased that out. I can think of a really good example of a trustee that working with me who works for a big city financial firm and obviously we've got him on the board because of the fundraising capabilities as much as his understanding of business but actually he's now mentoring one of our young artists and he's getting an enormous amount from that relationship and the artist is getting phenomenal value from him. Govinda. Um, just from my experience, one, being a trustee myself and also having trustees with some of the organisations I work with, preparation is very important. There's no point being a trustee, turning up to meetings and not really kind of understanding and not being able to contribute. So I think time is really important. But also I think about being uh, not only passionate, but being a champion for the organisation outside of meetings, you know, representing. So especially for like a small organisation like ourselves, you know, we can't be everywhere. So we really are relying on our board members to be the champions and opening doors and promoting the kind of work and the ethos that we're doing. But another important point, I, I think, is around being discreet as well. You know, you're sitting in meetings, there's confidential information, there's finance and other issues that are being discussed, especially for smaller organisations. It can be uh, difficult, you know, there's nothing worse than having, um, you know, your minutes or your financial problems or, you know, whatever challenges you've got then being discussed outside in the wider community. How do you go about effectively recruiting board members? Where do you find them and, and what can you do to ensure that your recruitment process is properly inclusive? I think there's a myriad of ways to do that. I think I'm always looking for trustees. I'm always thinking about what we need and also 
building relationships. I think people know people and there's always an opportunity to be expanding your networks and to be thinking about that. In terms of a process, one way of looking at it is to really look at the skills and the qualities that you have around the table and identify what you feel might be missing in relation to your strategy. So not always replacing like for like, but thinking ahead is one of the key aspects for the board. Are you always a bit on the lookout? Always. (laughs) Always. And how important is it, Moira, that boards reflect the target audience of the organisation? I think it's really important that boards are diverse. I think you avoid groupthink if you've got lots of different voices around the table. And I think it makes organisations genuinely more resilient. And I do think you need to create spaces for those voices. I used to work for a housing association and we had a customer group who fed into the board and one of the board members chaired that group. Sometimes you have to think about what the role of the board is and whether it really is an attractive proposition for people, whether they've got the time to commit to it properly and they've got the resource to commit to it properly. And I'm not sure that sometimes the best answer is to have representatives from your community groups on the boards. I think there are other ways of achieving that. When you can do it, it's marvellous, but it isn't an easy fix. shouldn't be tokenistic. That's my really key point. The worst thing possible is for a young person or someone from a disadvantaged community to feel like they're being pulled onto a board just so that they can tick a box for somebody somewhere else and that they don't actually have any legitimacy or credibility or decision making in that context. We're going to actually talk very specifically about youth boards in a moment. But Govinda, I want to go back to you about recruiting board members. Because your organisation is based in just one county, do you feel restricted when it comes to recruiting in terms of the pool of people you can draw on? Kent is a quite big county, so uh, in in terms of uh, recruitment, it's not too much of an issue. I mean, what we found is the board has grown over time. As we've developed and broadened our work, people become more aware of it. So we have obviously a central board, but then depending on where we're delivering projects, what we try to do is then get community representatives and community partners involved, so specifically in their area. Because we work in uh, different parts of Kent, so we deliver projects in six uh, boroughs in Kent, in each area where we're working, we have community advisory groups because obviously they're interested in their work in their town, in their Pacific on a geographical location. So we work with them, take their feedback and take their advice and support. And it helps us out as an organisation. How do you go about recruiting? It's a number of ways. I mean, we've obviously used social media, we've used our website, but really it's a word of mouth, out and about, networking, talking to people. Moira, I think you raised a really important point about time because I think that very often arts organisations aren't honest enough about how much time it's going to take being on a board because they're worried about putting trustees off but I've been on boards where trustees simply it becomes clear that they're simply too busy really. I think it's a real issue and it's a sort of topsy-turvy thing so the bigger the organisation the more I think people can give less time, if that makes sense. And the smaller the organisation, the more we need trustees who can really give time and resource. And it's not a job everybody can do. And sometimes they don't realise until they've already accepted that there is going to be paperwork, that they're going to be expected to attend events in the evening or on the weekends, and that they can expect those emergency phone calls from a chief exec to say something's going wrong and I really need a sounding board right now, this minute. And that's often out of hours time. 
It's also not always obvious, particularly to new board members, and I speak with some personal experience here, or trustees, what's expected of you. Claire, the importance of induction. Yeah, I think before that even, Kirsty is probably trying to describe that in a job description, the kind of qualities and skills, and in our recent recruitment for a new chair, we did put a time commitment, and we also describe the different kinds of ways in which that time might be split up. We've done that with another board member really in detail because she's travelling and needing to make sure she can make that time. The other thing I'd advise people looking for trustee roles is to go onto the Charity Commission website and read the annual accounts. Um, And if you can't read them, get somebody else to read them with you and check through. So you do what we call your due diligence and see what you can glean from that and then use that as part of the dialogue for any kind of interview or you know ongoing exchange. Govinda. A very important point there by Claire and I think it's really important the induction because it's important that trustees understand their role. Just from my experience obviously working in voluntary sector for about 20 years and we work with diverse communities is sometimes ensuring that if you are recruiting people from maybe have English as a second language for example that they do understand what it is and what it isn't. The induction has got to be clear and there's got to be clear lines or powers of authority, what a trustee can do and what they can't do. Now, can you each give some specific examples of when you've experienced positive actions as well as challenges from your boards? <laughs> They're all laughing so, now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I think one of the pivotal moments for the boards is actually in recruiting the new chief executive. That can be positive and it can be a real challenge because someone said to me years and years ago, if you don't get that bit right, then you've actually failed in your role. That's the primary purpose of the trustees is to get the right person to lead the organisation. I see it as a huge positive and I've been on boards where we've recruited fantastic people. I've also you know, been in circumstances where that's been a real challenge for everybody and there hasn't necessarily been consensus around the table either, which is also difficult. Because you have disagreed with who the board would like to recruit. Yeah, and as Govinda says, you know, sometimes boards have a really very strong sense of what their role is and they may want a chief executive who they feel can do what they want to do rather than empowering that person to lead the organisation. So the clarity with which you set up that process of recruitment for a CEO I think is really important. Govinda, have you had particular challenges from your board? Not with my present board but previously with other boards I've been involved with. It's just really understanding their role and understanding what the limits are and what they can and they uh, can't do. And that obviously puts an added pressure on an employee as well. If you're having to run an organisation and also try to manage the expectations of a board, that can cause a, a real challenge. And, you know, I've seen plenty of examples of CEOs then going off with stress, especially if you're working with small organisations and the leader is then going off due to issues with the board. It then has an impact on the kind of service delivery. I would like to think now, in this day and age, that things have definitely improved, but all it needs is one awkward board member or someone to come in and the dynamic doesn't work and it can really have an impact. Claire, just finally, have you got an example of a positive uh, challenge from the board um, or a negative one? Plenty of them all, but I think, again, this is a historic one, I think, where the organisation I was involved with was facing an existential crisis and it's where you work out really who's up for the challenge and those are the moments where 
you learn the most, they learn the most. And we had a critical moment, which was we were either going to exist or not exist. We had to create a transitionary board to get us to where we needed to get to. The people who sort of stood by me at that very critical moment are probably friends for life. I had one board member who gave and we quantified £64,000 worth of pro bono advice. If we'd have had to have paid for that, we would have gone under. I had people who worked with me to scenario plan business model and really vision our way out of a huge challenge you know we all went through probably the worst and the best time together we should mention fundraising because i've seen some phenomenal examples of boards who come together collectively to help with the fundraising effort and i've seen some examples where that contract about fundraising has really not been understood from the beginning and i think the world has changed a lot in the last five to ten years I don't think the quantum of money that you can give as a trustee should be the criteria by which you join a board, but I think you have to now accept that your part of your role is to help in that fundraising endeavour. Now, we're going to pause this discussion for a moment to hear from a dance circus company called uh, Motion House in Leamington Spa, who've just hosted their first youth board meeting. And this meets separately from the main board, but will feed into the agenda, hopefully. I'm Amy Dalton-Hardy and I am the creative learning producer at Motion House. We are a professional touring company. We have a signature brand, Dance Circus. We have a company of eight dancers on the road. We tour indoor and outdoor productions and our latest production, which is currently on tour around the UK and Europe, is called Wild and it's free to audiences whenever we present it, usually at festivals around the UK. Audiences can come along and see our work for free. We set up a youth board because I wanted to ensure that we incorporate where young people are at, how they see us. It's really important to find out what their views are because I think the world's changing very fast. They are accessing art and culture through very different means to older generations, mostly through their phones. So a youth board is a really good way to ensure that we can hear their voice. This evening is our first ever youth board meeting and it's a real big occasion for Motion House. It's never happened before. Twelve young people coming into our offices to tell us what they think about our work. It's super exciting. The hope is that the young people will feed upwards their thoughts and feelings around our work up to our senior management team and there onwards to our Board of Governors. Tonight's going to be the first of many meetings that we've got planned and we're really looking forward to it. Right, so, um, welcome. I'm Amy and I am, as you know already from the many emails, the Creative Learning Producer. It's very exciting. Can't tell you how exciting it is to have you here. First up on the agenda is just to introduce ourselves. So I know we've just done that, but I'd like to go round. I'm Katie. I think it'll be really interesting to compare ideas between like-minded people. We're all of a young age. We've all got the same kind of ideas, but also slightly different. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see what we can add to the company as a whole collective group. I think it's important young people have a say in how organisations are run because the world is changing so fast and our generation is going to be the one that change things. Things like the environment, topics that are really current at the moment need to be explored and talked about. Hi, I'm Emily. I think young people bring something a lot different to boards than the older generation. They might have less life experience, but they've got a lot more involvement in technology, I suppose, and 
they've just got different views on the world which will be worth exploring and also because they're worth exploring they make it more relevant for the younger audience. Everything is so technological nowadays we want to make sure that it does stay current and it does stay relevant but also it's not just everything's on your screen that people do get active and get involved in the outside world and physical performance. It's not just about the performers and you know the people on the boards and behind the scenes it is about the people who watch it and it is about the audience they're the people that we're trying to please and trying to make it exciting for so they're the main reason we're here. Lots of food for thought. Do any of you have youth boards? We, we yeah. have young Warren? people on one of our um, grant-making decision panels. So we have two young people on that panel and two on another panel. And they have absolute power and decision-making roles. This, uh, they're exactly the same as everybody else who sits on that panel. That's a relatively recent decision that we took and we're delighted by it. And do they bring a different agenda? It was quite interesting hearing one of the contributors there sort of saying, you know, we care about different things. You know, obviously, you know, climate change, environment, is far more urgent for them. They're digital natives. We certainly find across the entirety of our grant making that one of the ways in which young people are engaging is through that climate emergency agenda and it, they feel very, very strongly about it. But it's not the only way. I think we see young people as activists and really interested in movement building, less interested in bureaucratic structures which they don't feel are particularly relevant so to them they bring them a bit of moment. extra passion then to the proceedings? Uh, passion, sometimes uh, a degree of naivety which is actually quite useful because it challenges what's all always gone and I think you know I speak as me um, you know we've done that before we've tried it before it doesn't work and actually to have someone in the room who says hold on a second I want to try it my way now and you can just back off a little bit is, is a really helpful um, challenge. Govinda uh, you're involved in the Kent Youth Justice Board uh, what advice have you got on how you know an organisation and a board can effectively engage young people in decision making? So one of my roles is I'm the county chair of um, an organisation called Independent Police Advisory Group. So we do a lot of work with uh, Kent Police and partners. And through that work, over the last three or four years now, we've been doing a lot of proactive work with young people. So we've set in Kent, they're called YPAGs, Younger People's Advisory Groups. And we get the young people to turn up to the strategic board meeting, for example, and stop and search is a particular one. And, you know, the perspective that comes from a young person who is more likely to be stopped and searched than someone like myself who's 45, it's invaluable. Sometimes, as Amora was mentioning earlier on, when you're in particular groups, you can get into a kind of mindset of groupthink. So it's very useful to have young people, you know, who are asking it and saying it as it is. And for myself, from a kind of artistic background, my background is... Um, in Kangara, you know, kind of art and culture from uh, North India. And obviously when I was growing up, I was very into the music and kind of understanding as you get older, you kind of move away, busy with life, work and families. But I utilise young people from those backgrounds to provide advice and support to me when we're programming, for example, finding out what artists are relevant, who's particularly doing well, are there particular people we should be working with. Claire, do you have any young people on your board at the place? I'm very pleased to say at our last board meeting we had a, a student on our board, the first person in 25 years and we're about to hit 50. So it was a landmark um, moment but we'd spent two years planning to get there in order that that was meaningful and a legitimate process. The place is also our higher education institution. We've got 150 undergraduates, 50 postgraduates and what we've been doing is 
is a is a planned program to skill them up to lead conversations. So they have been chairing the student staff liaison committee. They have been involved in conversations with the conservatoire, which we're part of. We've got a student governor now who's the student for the six schools that are part of the conservatoire. Now, I chair the board of, of the Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art in Gateshead. And because under 35s make up half our audience, we've been discussing whether to get youth members. But I'm very conscious that the boardroom can be an incredibly intimidating place for a young person. I mean, you can't just throw them in the deep end. How do you prepare them for that setting? I think it's a really, really important question. And and like I said, we've been doing a two-year programme which begins with induction, with presentations, which describes and gives visuals on accountability, allows them to ask and test questions and then skill them up gradually. I think there's something really interesting about skilling up the board as well as skilling up the young people so that they're actually able to accommodate new voices and new approaches into the boardroom. Actually, I've had a challenge from one of my trustees or one of my organisations recently, and he's not a young person. And he said, could we spend less time on paper and more time on actually strategic conversation? That was a really useful challenge for me in thinking about what value do we want to create in that boardroom? And how do we do that to maximise everyone around the table? I think that is so true. I think so often you'll you'll join a board thinking, oh, this is going to be exciting. I feel passionate about this. And then you spend board meetings ploughing through accounts or you know various reports from the executive but you also want to be part of that wider blue skies thinking strategy you know and the art form itself you want to be hearing that I think we often forget that actually around the boardroom table and I think uh, you mentioned it before as well in terms of young people it's important if you are to have get them involved at the board meetings and the work is, is relevant to them as well. There's no point having a tick box exercise to say we've got two young people on there when everything that's been discussed is potentially going to go over their head or they're not getting an opportunity to engage. So I think that's something that I think arts organisations need to factor in as they move forward and if they are looking to recruit young people. Well, let's move on now to one of the most important relationships in any organisation, and that is between the chair and the CEO. Claire, you're currently CEO at The Place. What advice would you give about making that vital relationship with the chair work effectively? We've appointed our new chair who begins on the 1st of August. So I'm in transition myself. So I've been giving this a lot of thought. And um, again, go back to the recruitment process, needing to be really clear about what it is you're looking for, whether the chair is there appointing the chief exec and the other way around. And that relationship is so vital and so key. But I also think that the other board members have a role to play to make sure that that doesn't become exclusive, that relationship is also open. And also to go back to Moira's earlier point about a critical friend, that you need to have both those components working in both directions. Critical friend. I mean, chairs need to challenge and to support, but where is the balance in that, Govinda? There's a time when a chair sometimes may have to be critical and push back a little bit, but there's also times when a chair needs to provide that support. And the key thing is getting the individual who can understand. It's not always about being the cheerleader, because there are times when they need to provide their experience and push back a little bit on the CEO. But at the same time, it's not a situation where it's always about cracking a whip over. It's having that kind of fine balance. From my role, even when I've been a chair as well, I've always taken the view when we're working with organisations that sometimes you have frank conversations in private, very frank conversations. But when you're out 
in the public domain, it's very important that you're seen to be supportive of the CEO or the organisation you're working with. How do you have that frank conversation but still maintain a good relationship? To me, it all comes down to individuals. Some people are open to learn and some people are not. But then that's obviously, if you're a chair, for example, it's understanding your CEO and knowing what buttons to push. So, for example, the work we do beyond the art sector, you know, it could be I'm being a critical friend to the chief constable, can police. It could be the police and crime commissioner. You know, it could be cabinet members at the county council. It's about knowing what buttons to push and how to do it. Now, Moira, you, you'll often get chairs who have been CEOs before. Indeed, you yourself are a CEO and a chair. You often get chairs trying to do the executive's job. <laughs> so what is the best way to deal with these boundary issues? Yeah, I may have been one of those people at, at various points in time as well. I think there is a lot about trust in this relationship that needs to be explored and something about, as a good chair, creating, whether it's formal or informal, a conversation about the terms of reference on both sides. How do you like to work so that you get that out into the open right at the get-go? And as part of that now as a chair, I say to my chief execs, you know, you need to tell me when I'm meddling. And there has to be an openness and an honest conversation, which works both ways. It's partly an issue about scale of organisations as well. I chair a small organisation and sometimes they really do want me to get into the detail of that organisation. If they've got an HR issue or a recruitment issue, they'll often come to me and say, have you got policy papers you can share or examples or can you actually sit on this board or listen to this complaint? So then you're right back in the executive space again. If you develop the right relationship, your chief exec can go, that was brilliant, thanks very much. Now could you just move back back out off again? The other thing is I think no surprises on either side and I think that's really critical. So as a chair, I should not be having meetings with people that my CEO doesn't know about. I shouldn't be meeting other members of staff. And actually, I don't think I should be meeting members of the board without the chief exec knowing that that's happening, because I think it's a betrayal of trust and it's undermining. Similarly, as a chair, I don't want any surprises in terms of sort of things escalating without me having been prepared about that by the chief exec. What about shared values? How important is it that the chair and the CEO should have the same alignment of vision in our recruitment process for a new chair that has been the guiding light if you like you know describing those values and then working that through and talking with people about those and I think a really good chair will be also doing a business effectiveness review a kind of annual review um, again as Moira says with the chief exec as as part of that process I'm really keen again that that gets reflected back and shared with the rest of the board so it, again it doesn't become too intimate I mean I think what's fascinating about that relationship between a CEO and chair is that when it doesn't work and I've, I've witnessed this it's utterly toxic for the whole organization I think the relationship between a chair and CEO should be akin to a good marriage actually you know mutual respect honesty you're all looking after a wider group and when you don't get on it's like a divorce if we use that as the analogy which I think is probably the safest thing for all three of us around the table (laughs) then whether you as a CEO can mobilize the other trustees to mitigate against some of that difficult not so much toxic relationship but where the communication's breaking down and you can call on other people it's why Claire's point about exclusivity is important if it gets really tough one person's going to have to go. And uh, that's a horrible, horrible place for an organisation to be in. The plus side of all this is it is absolutely worth investing the time and energy to make that relationship as good as you possibly can. 
Govinda, have you got any examples of uh, you know, a good relationship, I suppose, between a CEO and chair and, and what, what makes that work? Recruitment is so crucial for board members. If you get that right, you can put solid foundations. It's so important, you can't stress that enough. And from my experience, more often than not, it does work. But when it doesn't work, it can have such a corrosive impact on an organisation. And then the danger is that other trustees or staff people, they don't want to be involved with the organisation and then they step back as well. If they see an organisation is potentially failing and on its way down, people don't want to see that on their CV. So it's so important so that we get can the get the recruitment right, yeah. start in the right place. It's a really good reason for trustees and particularly the chair to see the work as well and to be present because sometimes you can be thinking, I can't see what my CEO is doing and you know where is their head? And then you go to see the work and you're reminded about why you're a chair in the first place. And also you see the value that other people place on your CEO and the work that they're doing. And that's a really useful check because, as you've said, Kirsty, being around the board table, it can feel very sort of heavy and you get into detail and you can forget about the work somewhere in that. I think it's a terrible indictment for the arts and cultural sector that we forget to talk about the arts and the culture. Well, I think that is a very, very good point to end on. Um, I want to thank Claire, Moira and Govinda for their time and for bringing their valuable insights to the table today. And I also want to thank everybody at Motion House in Leamington Spa for taking part in this episode. Our next episode in the series looks at resolving conflict and crisis. It'll be available online in the next few weeks and I hope you tune in. For more resources and guidance around leadership and good governance, visit the Advice and Guidance Library on the Arts Council website. That's artscouncil.org.uk UK forward slash leadership. We also want you to join in the discussion, so let us know what you think about this episode on Twitter using the hashtag AceLeadership and also tell us about anything you'd be keen for us to cover in future. Thanks for listening to Creative Matters. For more from Arts Council England, visit artscouncil.org.uk forward slash creative matters.